Welcome. You are listening to the Audio Information Network of Colorado. This recording is intended to be used solely by individuals with barriers to print. Thank you for joining us for the Wednesday, March 8, 2023 reading of the Fort Collins Coloradoan. My name is Ginger Hedrick. Today we will be reading the following main articles. Larimer County Elections Office Getting $3 Million to Address Needs Written by Pat Ferrier Youth Homeless Shelter Coming to County Written by Kelly Lyle Decision on Wellington Asphalt Plant Put on Hold Also by Pat Ferrier Fossil Ridge Preston Teams in National Science Bowl Finals, written by Kelly Lyle. Serial New York Times Investigate Laramie Cold Clay Case, written by Erin Udell, and following up with miscellaneous articles. Larimer County Elections Office Getting $3 Million to Address Needs written by Pat Ferrier, Fort Collins, Colorado, and USA Today Network. Larimer County's election office will get about $3 million over two years to reconfigure and expand the space in which it counts ballots and stores election equipment. County commissioners on Tuesday authorized $2 million to lease, remodel, furnish, and equip new space after Larimer County Clerk and Recorder Angela Myers raised concerns about her office's ability to process the number of ballots that come in on Election Day in a timely manner. Manner, excuse me, with the new funding work done at 2619 and 2555 Midpoint Drive will shift to 2573 Midpoint and warehousing will move from Prospect Road to 2619 Midpoint. The expansion will allow the county to purchase another machine that begins the signature verification process. Between the machine and human labor, the county can process about 20,000 ballots per day, far fewer than the 65,000 ballots that were turned in on November 8, 2022, and the 90,000 that are expected on future election days. Commissioners unanimously supported the additional funding. We know there's a need, Commissioner Kristen Stevens said. We are not going to let the county have a failed election. We want people to have faith in an election system that is run well, and it is, but it can run more efficiently if they have the space to do what they need to do. The additional $1 million will be included in the clerk's budget next year. Space constraints and lack of room to house more equipment to process ballots could put the county at risk of not meeting state election deadlines, Myers told commissioners last week. State statutes require counties to give voters credit for voting within two days of casting their ballots and provide counties two days to finish signature verification. 
If signatures don't match, the ballot is set aside and voters have eight days to cure their ballots. If the county doesn't review signatures within a couple days, voters don't have time to get them corrected, Meyer said. The clerk and recorder's office will oversee four elections between this November and next November, including a presidential primary, local primary, and general election in November 2024. Funding could come from the Fund for Equipment Replacement and the Facilities Capital Fund Balance, as well as through the annual capital budget. Youth Homeless Shelter Coming to County, written by Kelly Lyle, Fort Collins, Colorado, and USA Today Network. 28 of the 423 graduates of Poudre High School last spring didn't necessarily have a home to go to after school each day. They were homeless as far as Poudre School District was concerned. So were 114 other students at Poudre High School last spring, Principal Kathy McKay said, and 1,000 others among the nearly 30,000 students in the district, according to figures provided by Poudre School District. Thompson School District identified more than 500 of its 15,000 students as homeless. The school district's definition of homeless comes from the federal McKinney-Vento Act, which provides support for students who lack a fixed, regular, and adequate nighttime residence. Northern Colorado as a region has had more than 400 unaccompanied homeless youths last year, said Nicole Armstrong, executive director of the Matthews House. That's a big number, Armstrong said. This is not one school district versus another school district. This is a community issue that needs to be addressed. The two school districts, along with the Matthews House, Homeward Alliance, Larimer County Department of Human Services, and others, believe they can begin addressing those needs with a new homeless shelter for unaccompanied youths scheduled to open in 2024. The Matthews House will oversee the shelter's operations, officials said. Here's what you need to know about the new facility. Where will the shelter be located? The shelter will be located at the current site of Thompson School District's Monroe Early Childhood Center at 814 16th Street in Loveland. Moore Elementary School, located on the same property, is closing after the current school year and will be sold, said Todd Picone, Director of Operations for the Thompson School District. U.S. Highway 34 is less than one block south of the location, providing easy access for people throughout the county. Retrofitting an existing building will sell, save $3 million to $4 million or more in turning the concept of a youth homeless shelter into a reality, Picone said. We have the brick and mortar, which is what historically our community lacked, Armstrong said. 
When Thompson School District came to the table and said, we can help with that, it really expedited where we're at. Other sites were considered and discussed, Picone said, but this one was one that we, that when we toured it, everyone looked at it and said, wow, this is nearly perfect. Who will it serve? Plans call for overnight housing for 12 to 20 unaccompanied youths ages 15 to 20 and drop-in facilities to serve up to 250 more annually, Armstrong said. Initially, we look at the 12 to 20 as where we feel real, really comfortable and confident to start the pathway, Armstrong said. We know that's not meeting all the needs in our community, but we also feel really concrete that this is where we can start and this is how we can serve best. Details on how the youths receiving overnight accommodations will be selected are being still being determined, Armstrong said. The Matthews House and the two school districts will work together to identify youths in need of the shelter and its services and to spread the word about its programs. Poudre School District identified 1,242 homeless students as defined by the McKinney-Vento Act. This year, Chief Information Officer Madeline Noblet said in a response to emailed questions. The majority of those students, 875, were staying with other families or couch surfing from the home of one friend to another. The remainder, though, were living in cars or RVs, camping or living in other forms of substandard housing, staying at motels or hotels, or staying at homeless or transitional housing shelters. Thompson School District reported more than 500 homeless students near the under the McKinley, McKinney-Vento Act during the 2021-2022 school year, McCone said. Figures for the current school year were not immediately available. What kind of drop-in services will be available? The drop-in facilities will be designed to support unaccompanied youths and connect them with services to assist with housing stability, health, nutrition, education, employment, and other needs. Poudre School District has been tasked with developing and identifying community resources offered within the drop-in center and shelter, Noblet said. This is not just an overnight stay. It's really looking at long-term, long-term longevity for youth, Armstrong said. From Thompson School District and Poudre School District's point of view, we want kids to be productive adults in our community. So when we know there are barriers that prohibit that, and that includes housing as a foundation, how do we help with the education to help to then help? One of their missions is for youth to be able to graduate with options and to go on and have other opportunities. And so those are all going to be afforded to youth that come into this program. How much will it cost and who is paying for it?
the physical transformation of the Early Childhood Education Center into a homeless shelter for youths will cost about $3.8 million, which includes the design, construction, renovations, remodeling, and furniture, Picone said. The operational budget for the first year will run about $2 million, Armstrong said. Larimer County has committed $1.5 million of its money from the American Rescue Plan Act, funded by Congress to help state and local governments recover from the impacts of the COVID-19 pandemics to the shelter. Additional funding for startup costs and the continued operation of the shelter will come from a variety of grants the two school districts and its partner agencies are seeking. Staffing and other resources will be provided by the two school districts and those partner agencies. Will transportation to and from schools be provided? Poudre School District and Thompson School District both recognize the need to transport students living in the shelter to and from school, officials said. Specific plans will be determined closer to its opening. What agencies are involved in this project? Multiple organizations are involved in the coalition that was established last fall to establish a regional youth shelter. They include the Pooter and Thompson School Districts, Matthews House, Homeward Alliance, Northern Colorado Continuum of Care, Colorado State University's Prevention Research Center, Larimer County Department of Human Services, and the Thompson Education Foundation. Others are and will be involved as the project moves forward, Picone said. When will it open? Assuming the expected funding from grants comes through and that construction and remodeling begin as scheduled this summer, the shelter will open in the late summer or fall of 2024, Armstrong said. If the need is so great, why won't it be open sooner? The biggest holdup right now is getting funding from the various grants that the school districts, the Matthews House, and other partner organizations are seeking, Picone said. They're counting on state grants to cover the costs of the physical construction, remodeling, redesign, and furnishing of the building itself, and others to cover the programming costs for the first few years, Armstrong and Picone said. Each partner agency is working through its normal channels and with one another to secure grants and other funding for the project. Progress is actually happening on a faster scale than projects of this scope normally would, Picone and Armstrong said, because of the cooperation and collaboration between the various partners. The initial approval from the Thompson School District Board of Education to repurpose the Monroe Early Childhood Center into a homeless youth shelter came just eight months ago. The Poudre School District Board of Education gave its approval less than two months ago. Support from both boards was unanimous. 
Where else can you do this type of project that impacts the future of our community, Pacone said. Look, 95% of youth go through the public schools, and if we can capture this percent that's unhoused, that just further helps our community in the bigger picture. To me, the foundation of community success is starting where we're starting. Decision on Wellington Asphalt Plant Put on Hold, written by Pat Ferrier, Fort Collins, Colorado, and USA Today Network. Wellington's Planning Commission delayed a decision about a new asphalt plan plant in North Wellington to get more information on what level of toxins, if any, are dispersed into the air. During a four-hour hearing, residents living near the proposed Connell Asphalt Plant at 3548 East County Road 66 voiced concerns about air pollution, noise, and truck traffic the plant may generate. The plant would mix asphalt for use in roads and highways. The site is in an industrial zone on a lot south of County Road 66 between North County Road 7 and North County Road 9, adjacent to Buffalo Creek subdivision and the undeveloped Sundance subdivision. Connell Resources' current plant, which is nearing the end of its lifespan, is just south of the Harmony Road and Interstate 25 intersection in Tinmouth. Connell plans to close the plant and redevelop it as a commercial and residential project, including a potential Top Golf Entertainment Center. The Planning Commission is the last approval Connell needs before it can apply for a building permit. The Wellington Board of Adjustments approved two variances for the plant in October, including allowing a 70-foot silo and an 800-foot buffer from residential areas. Wellington's land use code limits heights in the industrial zone to 45 feet and requires a 1,000-foot buffer from neighborhoods. Flooded with last-minute emails and in-person comments from neighbors questioning the levels of benzene, formaldehyde, and other toxins that could be emitted from the plant, commissioners stepped on the brakes, asking town planners to find additional resources and data to help them sort through conflicting information. Are there going to be toxic chemicals emitted at this plant? Commissioner Lowry Moyers asked, Is the 800-foot buffer enough? Are our kids going to be okay? As a resident with four kids, I want to know. Leah Schneider, an environmental health planner with Larimer County, said the plant does produce air toxins, pollutants that are known or suspected to cause cancer or other serious health effects but the concentrations depend on production levels and equipment. An analysis of potential air toxics at a larger asphalt plant near the Poudre Trail in Fort Collins had emissions that were within acceptable levels even for the closest neighbor and at the trailhead, she said.
but each asphalt plant is individual. Air dispersion modeling will be a huge asset to evaluate what needs to be done to protect the community if this is approved. Wellington's Land Use Code and the state require the plant to be tested regularly for air pollutants. John Warren, president of Connell Resources, said that in 2002, the Environmental Protection Agency removed asphalt plants from its list of major sources of hazardous air pollution under the Clean Air Act and concluded asphalt plants do not have the potential to emit hazardous air pollution approaching major source levels. Connell will comply with all emission regulations, but emissions coming from the plant are similar to emissions from everyday sources, he said. It's a misnomer that what's coming out of the stack is asphalt fumes, he said. It's steam coming off the natural gas used to heat aggregates. We use a lot of natural gas, but the emissions are no different from what's coming off the furnace at your house. A report from Sanborn, Head and Associates of Denver, reported in an emissions comparison report that the benzene emissions from the combustion of fuel are equivalent to a single gas station, or single fast food restaurant in a year. In a letter sent to commissioners, resident Katie Meyer urged the board to require a 2,600 foot, foot setback, which the Wellington Land Code use recommends for heavy industrial and manufacturing uses. The town has due diligence to find the correct unbiased research and data to make sure the land use code is properly followed, she said. Jason Waldo, whose family has owned the property next door for 44 years, said Connell has addressed his family's concerns. As a family, we feel this is a good opportunity to have a quality company as neighbors. The property has been zoned industrial for years, and given that the asphalt plant will operate seasonally from about April to November, Waldo said his family supports the project. Fossil Ridge Preston Teams in National Science Bowl Finals Written by Kelly Lyle, Fort Collins, Colorado, and USA Today Network Make it a three-peat. While Fossil Ridge High School's boys basketball team was earning a second consecutive trip to the final four of Colorado's state championships, the school's Science Bowl team was winning a third straight state title at the National Renewable Energy Laboratory in Golden. After heading to Washington, D.C. for the national championships next month with Fossil Ridge's team will be a team from one of its feeder schools, Preston Middle School. Preston won a regional middle school championship a week earlier to earn its expenses paid trip to the 2023 National Science Bowl Finals from April 27th to May 1st. 
Fossil Ridge's team of Carrie Fang, Sophie Wang, Jackson Drake, Colin Majelki, and Quentin Perez-Wall beat out 13 other teams from Colorado high schools to claim its title. Fossil Ridge, coached by Ryan Rydell, defeated Fairview in the final. The Colorado State Championships were one of 64 regional qualifiers for the national championships, with only the winners from each moving on. The National Renewable Energy Lab wrote in a news release announcing the results. All five Fossil Ridge team members previously competed on Preston teams that won state and competed at nationals at middle, as middle schoolers, and three have younger siblings who competed for Preston this year, Preston co-coach Logan Burke wrote in an email. Preston teams went 1-2 to two in the championships of the Middle School Regional State Championship February 25th that was conducted virtually on Zoom. Members of the winning team moving on to nationals are Lauren Majelki, Alexis Drigg, Ella Wang, Devin Baldwin, and John Lin Fang. The runner-up team consisted of Lucas Tushowski, Samer Abdo, Evan Maines, Faye Feng, and Parker Elder. Burke and Preston Principal Amy Kirby coached the two teams. Students from the two Poudre School District teams moving on to nationals will participate in several days of science events and sightseeing in addition to the actual competition, the U.S. Department of Energy said in a news release announcing Preston's regional championship. The top two middle and high school teams will win $5,000 for their school's math and science departments, organizers said. Other schools, placing among the top 16 in the national finals, will earn $1,000 for their school's science departments. The Department of Energy created the Science Bowl in 1991 to encourage students to excel in mathematics and science and pursue careers in these fields, the National Renewable Energy Laboratory wrote. Teams consist of four members along with one alternate and a teacher who serves as a coach and advisor. The competition tests students on a range of science disciplines, including biology, chemistry, energy, earth science, math, and physics, organizers said. Serial New York Times Investigate Laramie Cold Case, written by Aaron Udell, Fort Collins, Colorado, and USA Today Network. After more than 37 years, the coldest case in Laramie is now under a national microscope. The murder of Shelley Wiley, a 22-year-old University of Wyoming student who was found stabbed in her burning Laramie apartment on October 20, 1985, is the subject of a new podcast by Serial Productions and the New York Times. Apt 
aptly named The Coldest Case in Laramie, the podcast follows New York Times investigative reporter Kim Barker as she revisits the decades-old case. Barker was a sophomore in high school in Laramie at the time of Wiley's murder. In the podcast's early episodes, Barker interviews police, Wiley's family and friends, witnesses, and various other people tied to the case, including two interview subjects who lived in Fort Collins at the time of the podcast's taping. Barker's interest in revisiting the case was spurred in 2020 when she learned a former police officer had been arrested in 2016 as a suspect in Wiley's murder and the arson of her apartment, she told the podcast's listeners in its first episode. Months after the suspect's arrest, the Albany County attorney dropped the charges, citing a need for more time for additional DNA testing of evidence. Charges against the suspect have not been refiled, according to the New York Times. Laramie's assistant police chief, Robert Terry, who spoke with Barker for her podcast, told the Coloradoan the serial production has so far resulted in a few words of advice from folks, including a plea to try increasingly popular genetic genealogy techniques like those used to catch the Golden State Killer in 2018. While the Larimer Police Department is familiar with such techniques, they were one of several agencies to use them in recent years to help identify a serial rapist and murderer who sexually assaulted victims across Wyoming and Utah in the 1990s and the early 2000s. Terry said there were no unknown DNA profiles in the Wiley case that could benefit from such testing. Wiley's case remains the oldest open cold case at the Laramie Police Department, Terry said, noting that any next steps will be determined by the Albany County Attorney's Office. Portion of West Mulberry to close for street repairs, written by Molly Bohannon, Fort Collins, Colorado, and USA Today Network. A portion of West Mulberry Street between College Avenue and Canyon Avenue will be closed for two to three weeks beginning Wednesday, March 8, for a concrete repair project. Access to residences and businesses will be maintained, according to the city, but lane closures and changing traffic patterns will be in place during construction. According to a map from the Streets Department, the section of Mulberry Street will be getting an asphalt overlay. City staff recommended using alternate routes to avoid the construction zone. Usually, construction occurs from 8.30 a.m. to 3.30 p.m. Monday through Friday, though it's possible it will happen outside of those times, too. Further, the project is weather-dependent and dates may change. 
The concrete repair is part of the city's street maintenance program, which is a comprehensive, systematic way for the city to evaluate its street system and follow through with long-term, cost-effective maintenance and rehabilitation, according to the city website. For more information on the program and what streets are planned to be repaired in the future, go to fcgov.com smp or call the Streets Department at 970-221-6615. After Last of Us, nod to CSU, here are TV shows with Fort Collins ties. Written by Aaron Udell, Fort Collins, Coloradoan, USA Today Network. Spoiler alert. This article contains information about Episode 6 of The Last of Us, which aired February 19 on HBO. Fort Collins? Famous? Not quite. The city has, however, served as inspiration, or at least speculated inspiration, for some popular TV shows from HBO's The Last of Us to NBC's Parks and Recreation. Here are the Fort Collins nods we could find on the small screen. The Last of Us. Fans of the video game franchise The Last of Us have long speculated that the University of Eastern Colorado, a fictional university protagonists Joel and Ellie stop at, in part one of the game was loosely based on Colorado State University. Well, the game's HBO adaptation fully leaned into those rumors, with a spokesperson for the television network confirming through one of its production designers that it did indeed draw inspiration from the Fort Collins School for the show's February 19 episode. Parks and Recreation a rejected Fort Collins City logo apparently resurfaced back in 2009 with the debut of NBC sitcom Parks and Recreation. The TV network created a website for the show's fictional city of Pawnee, Indiana, boasting a Pawnee logo that featured two swooping lines that were virtually identical to those Fort Collins had once planned to use in its city logo, according to a 2009 Coloradoan report. The rejected Fort Collins city logo was introduced in 2008 as part of an economic stimulus effort to brand the city, but the redesigned logo instead ruffled some residents' feathers. After a largely negative reaction, with some residents saying they were underwhelmed by the design, the logo was ultimately changed to feature horse tooth rock instead of the Pawnee-esque swooping lines. South Park South Collins, excuse me, Fort Collins got the South Park treatment back in 2016 when the long-lived Comedy Central series featured the city on an episode appropriately titled Fort Collins. The episode, part of the show's 20th season, 
showed a cartoon aerial shot of Fort Collins, featuring a little skyline with the Key Bank and First National Bank buildings and the A on a football in the background. It also featured a chaotic city scene with a building similar to New Belgium in the background. Saturday Night Live Some eagle-eyed Fort Collins TV viewers spotted something familiar on the December 3rd, 2022 episode of Saturday Night Live. In a three-second shot introducing the skit featuring episode host Kiki Palmer, fans noticed a building that looked identical to Colorado State University's Medical and Health Center. The building's logos were removed in the shot, but CSU's Assistant Vice President of Strategic Communications, Greg Harrison, later confirmed the school's medical center was featured, surmising that it might have been used as an archived clip from a public website. New Mexico Legislature Votes to Block Local Abortion Bans, written by Morgan Lee, Associated Press, Santa Fe, New Mexico. An initiative that would shore up abortion access in New Mexico amid a flurry of local anti-abortion ordinances cleared a major hurdle, cleared a last major hurdle on Tuesday with state Senate approval. New Mexico has one of the country's most liberal abortion access laws, but two counties and three cities in eastern New Mexico have recently adopted abortion restrictions that reflect deep-seated opposition to offering the procedure. Democratic State Senator Katie Duhigg of Albuquerque urged colleagues to support a bill that would prohibit local governments from blocking access to reproductive health care, including abortion, birth control, and prevention of or treatment for sexually transmitted diseases. It ensures the local governments can't block access to that care, said Duhigg. Your ability to access, access life-saving health care is really limited by your zip code right now. State Senate approval on a 23-15 to 15 vote nearly ensures the bill will reach Democratic Governor Michelle Lujan Grisham, a staunch supporter of abortion rights. The governor is one of 20 state leaders working together to strengthen abortion access. House approval of Senate amendments is pending before the bill can be signed. The bill could impact abortion access for residents of neighboring states with abortion laws, including Texas. The Democratic-sponsored bill would also ban local restrictions on gender-affirming care, which typically can include puberty-blocking medication, hormone therapy, or surgeries. That provision is a counterpoint to proposed bans on gender-affirming care for minors or young adults in more than two dozen states. 
An additional bill working its way through New Mexico's legislature would protect abortion providers and patients from out-of-state interference, prosecution, or extradition attempts. In 2021, New Mexico's Democratic-led legislature passed a measure to repeal a dormant 1969 statute that outlawed most abortion procedures, ensuring access to abortion after the U.S. Supreme Court overturned Roe v. Wade last year. The local ordinances adopted in New Mexico are similar to the effort to ban abortion in local jurisdictions by Mark Lee Dixon, founder of the Texas-based Sanctuary Cities of the Unborn organization. Anti-abortion ordinances adopted over the past several months by officials in the city of Hobbs, Clovis, and Eunice, along with Lee and Roosevelt counties, reference an obscure U.S. anti-obscenity law that prohibits shipping of medication or other materials intended to aid abortions. A debate on the state Senate floor Tuesday was peppered with emotional stories in support and opposition to the bill that touched on personal and family decisions about abortion and health care in the wake of rape and gender identity for young people. U.S. sues to block JetBlue from buying Spirit Airlines. AG says deal would hurt cost-conscious travelers. Written by David Koenig, Associated Press. The Biden administration sued to block JetBlue Airways' $3.8 billion purchase of Spirit Airlines, saying Tuesday that the deal would reduce competition and drive up airfares for consumers. The Justice Department said the tie-up would especially hurt cost-conscious travelers who depend on Spirit to find cheaper options to JetBlue and other airlines. Attorney General Merrick Garland held a news conference to announce the antitrust lawsuit, a sign of the importance that the administration places on stopping further consolidation in the airline industry. If allowed to proceed... This merger will limit choices and drive up ticket prices for passengers across the country and eliminate Spirit's unique and disruptive role in the industry, he said. The Justice Department lawsuit filed in Federal District Court in Boston stressed that the deal would mean the end of the nation's biggest ultra-low-cost carrier, those are airlines that generally provide the cheapest fares, but also tend to charge more fees. The Justice Department lawyers said Spirit's demise would eliminate about half of all ultra-low-cost seats in the market. It cited a Spirit estimate that average fares fall 17% when it enters a route and a JetBlue calculation that fares rise 30% when Spirit leaves a route. The airlines vow to continue fighting to salvage their agreement. 
JetBlue CEO Robin Hayes said the merger would boost competition by making his New York-based airline bigger and better able to go up against American, United, Delta, and Southwest. He blamed the Department of Justice for airline consolidation. We believe the Department of Justice has got it wrong on the law here and misses the point that this merger will create a national, low-fare, high-quality competitor to the big four carriers which, thanks to their own Department of Justice-approved mergers, control about 80% of the U.S. market, Hayes said. JetBlue and Florida-based Spirit have anticipated a legal challenge for weeks. The Justice Department had previously requested additional documents and depositions about JetBlue's proposal to buy Spirit, the nation's biggest budget airline. Negotiations over a possible settlement failed. As signals grew stronger that the government would challenge the tie-up, JetBlue launched a preemptive campaign to make its argument that the deal would help consumers by creating a stronger competitor to the four larger carriers. Hayes said he was disappointed but not surprised at the lawsuit. We said when we got the offer approved by the Spirit shareholders last year that we didn't think we would close into the first half of 2024, expecting a trial, he said on CBS Mornings. The lawsuit is the latest by the Biden administration to seek to block mergers in industries including health care, sugar refining, video gaming, and publishing. It has already lost the health care and sugar battles. They don't seem to be afraid of losing cases. They're hoping that it that if they win some, they that will set a precedent and help them deter other mergers that they view as anti-competitive, said Florian Ederer, an antitrust expert at Yale University. He thinks the government has a strong case against the JetBlue deal. The Justice Department was under pressure from Democratic lawmakers and consumers' advocates who complained about a wave of earlier mergers. In 2021, the administration took a more aggressive approach, suing to kill a limited partnership between JetBlue and American Airlines in the Northeast. A federal judge in Boston is expected to issue a ruling soon after a non-jury trial last fall. JetBlue and Spirit would control a little over 9% of the domestic air travel market, far smaller than American, Delta, United, and Southwest. JetBlue executives repeatedly said their deal was not like Pepsi buying Coca-Cola, a line that Hayes repeated Tuesday. However, their concentration is much higher on certain routes in the East. The Justice Department lawsuit said the two account for nearly 50% of the traffic between Boston and Miami and Fort Lauderdale, and nearly 90% between Boston and San Juan, Puerto Rico. The Justice Department sued to block the last mega-deal, America's 2013 merger with U.S. Airways, 
then reached a settlement that required that carriers to give up some gates and takeoff and landing slots at several major airports. Before that, the government allowed Delta to buy Northwest, United to merge with Continental, and it later let Southwest buy Air Tran. Last year, JetBlue torpedoed a deal between Spirit and Frontier Airlines, then beat Frontier in a bidding war. Frontier CEO Barry Biffle argued that regulators would block a JetBlue Spirit deal, but not a tie-up with his airline, a similar discount carrier. To counter Biffle's argument, JetBlue agreed to pay Spirit shareholders $40 million plus $70 million to the company if the merger dies for antitrust reasons. The largest union for flight attendants, the Association of Flight Attendants, reiterated its support for the merger Tuesday, which it said would lift pay and benefits for spirit crews that it represents. But the American Economic Liberties Project which opposes corporate consolidation, praised the Justice Department for seeking to block the deal. Will New Mexico lawmakers fund oil and gas oversight in budget bill? Written by Adrian Hedden, Carlsbad Current Argus, USA Today Network, New Mexico. Environmental regulators in New Mexico worried they might not have the funds needed to control pollution from state industries like oil and gas, based on the budget proposed by lawmakers and awaiting approval during the ongoing 2023 legislative session. House Bill 2, the General Appropriations Act of 2023, will set New Mexico's spending levels for all its, state's depart all its state departments, including the New Mexico Environmental Department, or NMED, tasked with overseeing natural resource development like fossil fuels and the impacts of operations. NMED Cabinet Secretary James Kenney said his agency made special appropriations requests this year tied to worsening air pollution in the southeast Permian Basin region where most of New Mexico's oil and gas development takes place. Those activities and their recent growth led New Mexico to become the second biggest oil-producing state in the United States, second only to Texas, which shares the Permian, which shares the Permian. Expanded extraction also meant more emissions of air pollutants like volatile organic compounds, which form cancer-causing ground-level ozone or smog. Ozone levels were recently deemed in excess of federal standards, meaning the U.S. Environmental Protection Agency could step in, adding more stringent federal requirements on regulatory actions like permitting of oil and gas sites in the region. 
It's a certainty Kenny said his department needs to be ready for to ensure a consistent rate of permitting and why the department asked legislature for a $2 million appropriation to fund staff additions in preparation for the EPA's actions expected later this year. But in the legislature's proposed budget, now before the Senate Finance Committee after passing the House on February 16, that request was largely denied. The current version of the bill combined the ozone appropriation with another $4.1 million request to address infrastructure needs tied to climate change, offering a total of $3.5 million for both initiatives. Kenny said that's just not enough for the NMED to continue achieving its mission amid growing oil and gas production. We have more to do, we have less to do it. That's going to result in a pretty big problem for my department in particular, he said. It's been a rough budget session. We're not getting what we've asked for. Boy Meets World star Savage enters U.S. house race, written by the Associated Press, Los Angeles. Actor Ben Savage, who starred as a child in the ABC teen sitcom Boy Meets World, is running for a U.S. house seat in California, marking his latest attempt to make the jump from Hollywood to politics. Savage, a Democrat, said in an Instagram post Monday that it's time to restore faith in government and that voters want leaders unhindered by political divisions and special interests. I firmly believe in standing up for what is right, ensuring equality and expanding opportunities for all, he wrote. Savage joins a crowded field for the seat held by Democratic U.S. Representative Adam Schiff, who is running for U.S. Senate. Other candidates include former Los Angeles City Attorney Mike Feuer and Democratic State Assemblywoman Laura Friedman. The heavily Democratic 30th District includes a swath of Los Angeles, including Hollywood and the trendy neighborhoods of Silver Lake and Echo Park, and also cuts through neighboring cities including Pasadena, Glendale, and West Hollywood. Savage starred in Boy Meets World for seven seasons in the 1990s, in which viewers saw his character, Corey Matthews, go from awkward sixth grader to a college student married to his high school sweetheart. He ran for a seat on the West Hollywood City Council last year, but only garnered about 6% of the vote. He said on his website that his priorities include working for safer streets and addressing homelessness and affordable housing. I support a robust public safety presence to keep the community safe and vibrant, Savage wrote. We need to support our law enforcement officers and provide them with the reasons they need to keep businesses, residents, the 
and re- visitors safe. That's the resources they need to keep businesses, residents, and visitors safe. Thank you for joining us for the Wednesday, March 8, 2023 reading of the Fort Collins, Coloradoan. My name is Ginger Hedrick. AINC programming is brought to you in part by Trendware. Colorado's best full-service IT-managed services and purpose-built computer device provider. AINC presents your Low Vision Resource of the Day. Today we would like to highlight the American Foundation for the Blind. This resource prides itself on mobilizing leaders, advancing understanding of visual impairments and blindness, and advocating for impactful policies. Learn more by visiting afb.org or calling 212-502-7600 or email info at afb.net. If you enjoyed this program, please register for our free services at www.aincolorado.org or by calling 303-786-7777. This is the Audio Information Network of Colorado.